Fill the Whole World Hears is our podcast of mission stories from across the globe, told by members in WEC UK and Ireland. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I am your host, Martha, and together we'll learn more about what mission can look like. It can be challenging to live for Christ in the day-to-day, but hearing from others can inspire us to persevere exactly where God has placed us. Thank you for joining and I hope you enjoy hearing these conversations. Thanks for joining me, Dave and Sue. Um, I'm very excited to hear what you've got to share today. Um, If you could just start by saying where was it that you went on mission and how long were you there for? We went to Ghana in West Africa. We were there for 10 years, 10 very exciting years. We worked with the Konkomba people, a tribal group in the north. From 1987 to 1997, but came back for health reasons. What was your journey into mission? I I sensed the Lord calling me to be involved in mission long, long before we met WEC. After we were married, we got excited about mission again. I was driving in my car one day. I'd really been seeking the Lord to show us what he wanted us to do and where he wanted us to be. After praying, just turned on the cassette in my car. The voice boomed out, you must follow me. And it will take all your life and all your energy and all your strength if you can do it. And I just felt, wow, that was like the Lord speaking very loudly to me and confirming that he really wanted us to be involved in mission. And it was soon after that that we heard about WEC for the first time from our pastor and his wife. And they were very excited to have us, amazingly. Actually, we were expecting our fourth child at that time. And David was self-employed doing all kinds of maintenance carpentry and stuff and uh, our pastor's wife said we have these friends who've bought this kit furniture and they'd like someone to put it together and these friends were the international directors of WEC so we went down to Bulstrode and I think as soon as we walked in the door we just felt this is it we belong with these people Mm. and uh, it went from there and it was so exciting. Were you just sent to Ghana because that happened to be where they were working? Or did you feel a particular call from the Lord to Ghana as a country? We were suggested that we go to West Africa because we had four children and there were two WEC schools there. There were four countries we could have gone to and uh, we prayed about it. And really the Lord laid Ghana on our hearts. One day we were really praying. We turned on the radio and it was talking about Ghana. Another time I was on a bus and somebody started talking about Ghana. And even in McDonald's, somebody at the next table said, do you know, I've just come back from this very interesting trip to Ghana. Just a complete stranger. Hmm. So I think we really knew that's where we were meant to be. Did you have sort of immediate inhibitions about going out with such young kids? Or was it just like, God's calling us to do this, just going to do it and not worry about it? I think for me it was. um, I had to be absolutely sure that it was what God wanted. And we had to sign, you know, a paper for work that we were willing to suffer uh, sacrifice and illness and even death for the sake of the gospel. And it was easy to sign it for myself. I found that quite a challenge to sign it on behalf mm. of four children who didn't choose it. But God really, really confirmed that that was his will. And that was where we were meant to be. We had only been in Ghana a month and that resolve was tested really severely because uh, our third son, who was four at the time, had malaria. We had never experienced malaria before, and our co-workers experienced people who would have known what to do, had actually 
gone away for a couple of days. And Daniel was just so ill one night. He was in a coma. He had a temperature going through the roof. I spent the whole night sponging him, fanning him. He'd had the malaria treatment. He'd had paracetamol. You know, we didn't know what to do. And at that night, God really challenged me. Are you here because you believe in mission in general or it's a great idea? Or are you here whatever the cost, because you sure this is where God wants you. And that night I really had to do business with God. And I knew that whatever the cost, I was where God wanted me to be and there was no choice. At that time, you know, malaria is, is something that, uh, it really hits you. It's a bit like flu. Um, it's much worse. And it's, but it's yeah. much, much worse. Particularly the first time you get it, when your body has absolutely no resistance to it. And we were living in the north part of Ghana. The roads were very, very poor. We were a nine, 10 hour drive from the capital city where everything happened. At that stage, we had no car. There was no doctor in the village where we lived. We had no electricity, no telephone or anything like that. This was a different world, you know, no mobile phones, no real phones. Mm. And Daniel was very sick. So... Uh, that was a, a really testing time. That's quite That's quite a challenge, a month into getting there, yeah. straight into the deep end. It was. It was. It was. I mean, we, we said we lived in the boonies. We'd go to the end of the road and, and sort of go beyond. And that was where we were. We were really in the middle of nowhere. On the Ordnance Survey map of Ghana, produced by the Ghanaian government, where we lived, it said the bush. Really. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's where we live. Wow. But that's where the people that we were reaching lived. The Concombas are a tribe of about a million people spread throughout the north of Ghana, possibly more. And into Togo. Uh, and into Togo, yes, and into the surrounding area. Uh, a tribe of people who were becoming extremely open to the gospel. Wycliffe had been there for some time and had translated the New Testament into their language. So they had the New Testament, but they didn't know really what it meant. They needed to be... They really needed discipling, and so uh, that was our main mission in church planting and evangelism, something we were very excited to do. Well, you answered my next question, which was going to be, what was your role? So you were both in church planting then? Well, it was more David because I had the children, so I was based much more around the house, uh, but there's still a lot you can do, and I got involved in all kinds of things, taught the women Bible and literacy. Uh, None of the women in our a village could read and there were classes for men and children the women were too afraid to go so um, I sort of told them that girls could learn just as well maybe even easier than boys and we'd have a class just for women away from the men and you know they took to it and within no time I had 20 women and they they all learned to read in their own language and could read their bible we moved into this village Uh, in a new area where there were no churches at all. David had to build us a house. And suddenly people started bringing sick children to me. I have no medical qualifications, but what they could see was I had four healthy children. None of my children had died. For them, that was most unusual. So as far as they were concerned, I knew what to do. So they'd bring their sick children. Before too long, it became a full-blown clinic and on our first furlough home I did a course in London for three months and then I was better equipped. Every morning I would start off in my little clinic room on the porch and see loads of sick people, a lot of malaria, diarrhea, infected wounds but sometimes more serious things. 
we'd have breakfast and I would teach the children homeschool for the whole morning. And after lunch, we had siesta and we would have clinic again in the evening. After the children were in bed in the evening, then I would do literacy on the, on the porch with the uh, village ladies in the dark with a little lantern and a blackboard. The other thing I did at a certain stage in the rain season, I planted a vegetable garden. And very interestingly, the village people started saying, she knows how to work. Because up till then, the fact that I was teaching my children, teaching the women to read in the evenings and doing a clinic, that wasn't work at all. It was only when I started growing vegetables that they thought I knew how to work. Yes. Mm. And so our days were very full. We didn't have a spare minute, but you know what? We loved every minute. We said to each other at that stage, we would be happy to spend the rest of our lives here. And what did a typical day look like for you, David, in in your role? Well, uh, a lot of time was spent with my co-worker. The Lord provided for us a co-worker. A concomber uh, man. A concomber man who was a budding pastor. And we spent a lot of time in Bible study together and sharing in the morning. And then doing practical things that we had to do. But in the evenings, we we would go out to different villages and we were very aware what the cultural norm was. In Ghana, the Concombers are very much tribal people. There's a chief for every village, and then there's a paramount chief who's over the whole clan, as it were, and other sub-chiefs. So if you go to a village, it would be very disrespectful to go in there and just start to share. It was very important to go to the chief and ask his permission, explain what we were doing, Uh, ask his permission to come into the village, to talk to them about the Bible, to learn about God. And um, he would then give his permission and he would call his elders together and they'd discuss. And then they'd come back to me and he gave us his permission to go. I'm thinking of one particular village where we went, just north of where we lived in Ghana. Our vision for sharing the gospel was to start with creation and start with the fall and God creating man and then go through the Bible introducing the story of God choosing a man and then Abraham and then God choosing a tribe very important to them they understood all this and then God choosing a people and then eventually coming to God sending his son the Lord Jesus Christ and sharing what he did and how he came and what he taught us and we're going back over eight nine ten 12 times into the village week by week sharing the gospel with them and then at the very end asking the village whether they want to follow Jesus and in this one particular village up to 200 people just stood up and said yes we have decided we would like to follow Jesus and uh, it was a wonderful thing in Ghana and among the Concomba people we talk about household conversion It's not just one individual person saying, I think I'm going to follow the Lord. Yes, they do, but they bring their family and they bring their tribe and they bring their relations and together they decide to follow Jesus. Yeah, it it was wonderful. And then it was great to then go on and train up the elders and train up the church. But that's another story. That's beautiful. I really, I really like that. It, in a lot of ways, that culture is a lot closer to the biblical culture and what you read about in the Old Testament. And what we're experiencing in Western kind of individualistic cultures is so different from that. I think we really struggle to grasp that community 
element I think it's really missing but that's amazing to hear can you tell us about a cultural difference that you experienced between Ghana and the UK in the west we're very task oriented in Ghana they were very people oriented and people mattered whatever you were doing everything stopped for people we learned a lot and I think it's made us better people uh, because that that's a wonderful way to be to really value people And the other thing, the Concombers were animistic people. They lived in fear of the fetish. After we'd been there for about nine months, we felt like we weren't making enough progress on our Concomber language. So we went to live in a small village. We really lived with the people and we lived like they lived. And it was fantastic for our language. We got to really understand the culture. And I used to sit in the afternoons with the other women with our babies or our small children all around us and shell peanuts. And a little while later, when we'd left that village, we returned. And one of my friends, little girl, who was about two, she had malnutrition really, really seriously. She really needed to be properly treated. Now, we knew a a clinic nearby run by Irish nuns where they did a really good job of looking after children like this. We asked if we could take little girl to this hospital and that we would pay anything that had to be paid. No, the father refused. The nurses used to do out clinics and they came one day to this village and they talked to the family and they explained that what they would do, how the little girl would get better. Within a couple of weeks, she'd be home and she'd be a new child. But the father had three wives, about 20 children. What he was really concerned about was if he having asked the fetish to make the child better, then turned to Western medicine, the fetish might be offended and the fetish might punish him and others in the family. Far better to lose a two-year-old girl than to, uh, evoke. Than to yeah, evoke the anger of the fetish. Mm. So what happened? Little girl died. No social services. There was nothing more we could do and it was tragic. And of course, you have to understand their fears if you're going to commute communicate with them on a heart basis. We spent two years really, not only in language study, but in cultural study. We lived with a man and his, his brother and their three wives and 16 children. We lived in one compound. That's where we really learned the culture. Could you talk a little bit more about the kind of the animistic practices and, and sort of what, what that involves? I, feel, I don't feel like that's something that people know much about here. Uh, I think we maybe coming from the West, didn't realise at the beginning quite how real it was. One day a man got uh, bitten by a snake out in his farm and his brother brought him to us and said, he he needs to go to the clinic. So David put him in the car. We had a Land Rover by then. And we drove him to this uh, clinic, this Irish nuns clinic, where they had all the right treatment. They gave him one file of anti-snake venom that normally did it. They gave him a second one that didn't do it. They gave him a third one, which was unheard of, and he died. And they didn't understand why he died. And then later, David brought the body back to the village. And when he was seeing the, the, the family, they said, oh, we knew he would die. David said, why? We got him the best treatment. Oh, we knew he would die because we had this falling out with another family, and they put a curse on us. We knew that one of us would die. And once he got bitten by the snake, we knew it would be him. And, you know, we basically said, you know, if we had 
uh, if you had explained that to us, we would have prayed for him. I mean, we were very, very new, very, very green, and probably didn't really quite understand how much power this had, and it mm. does. It's very real. It's not just um, fear and bondage, which it is, but it's not just that. It's very real, spiritual mm. powers. Yes, one morning I remember a loud banging on the door of our house and I went to the door and this man was very worried and he called me to come quickly into the village. So I followed him and we came to this place where a large crowd had gathered around. I was taken into the centre and shown a place where a chicken had laid an egg without a shell. And I'd never seen this, everything completely intact with the skin around the egg, but there was no shell. And to them, this was a real omen of fear. And they were desperately concerned that somebody in the village was about to die or would be killed, possibly by the fetish. And it was an opportunity to share with them about the power of God and the power of prayer. And so I encourage them, look, do not fear. I will pray and whatever it is that you are fearing will not happen because the Lord will stop this. And so I prayed with them and prayed in front of them. And we prayed over this egg and they were happy and they went away and nothing did actually happen but that's an illustration of the of the, the power of the uh the, the the fetish does have on these people i've never heard of an egg being laid without a shell oh. that's crazy yes i know <laughs> it is it is crazy <laughs> do you have other examples of how prayer actually was the sort of i guess the weapon against that kind of darkness or had a, a situation where for many many days there hadn't been rain the, the many the, days many months there many months been there hadn't been rain and the people were really desperate as i said there are agricultural people and they needed rain for their crops and for their farms they had been doing all sorts of things to try and make the rain come and nothing had happened and then they came and they said will you pray to your god will you pray and ask god to send us rain and so we did. We prayed. We prayed in front of them. We prayed with them and asked the Lord to send rain. And that evening, even though the weather looked exactly the same, there was still, you know, a lovely sunset and, and uh, no clouds in the sky. All the village put out their pans and their pots and their things because they were expecting the Lord um, to under answer. The, under the roofs, that's where they catch the water. Where the rain comes down, where the, yes, off the edge of their roofs. And so there were all these pots and pans there and we went to sleep. And in the night, there was this almighty thunderstorm and the rain clattered down and all the pots and pans and everywhere in the village were filled and obviously the farms too. So they were absolutely thrilled. The Lord had answered prayer. Wow. That reminds me of the, the end of James where it says Elijah, the righteous man, didn't, although he's praying not for rain, but, <laughs> but it's yes. the same, same kind of applicable passage. It's amazing. Yeah, we did see amazing answers to prayer, really, because the people were, they were lovely and their faith was very simple. And when we shared with them about the Lord, you know, they just trusted. It was wonderful. We'd only been in the country maybe six months or something. And we were down in the guest house in a crowded capital because we had to do cer certain things there every so often. And uh, David was out with the car and the guest house manager was also out with his car. I was at home with the two younger boys. The bigger ones were off at boarding school at that stage. Uh, they were about mm, five and three, something like that. And um, I was at home with them. And Daniel, who was five, was riding his bike around the compound. 
and suddenly, I don't know what, he hit something or whatever, but he went over the handlebars of his bike and landed on the concrete and split his chin from side to side. It was just gaping open, it was huge. And it was late afternoon by then, and um, it's not like here where any hospital will have a good A&E department and things. Uh, there were there's lots of little hospitals there, and we knew one which was meant to be very reliable and good. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to get there before the one doctor went home for the evening and just left nurses and people overnight. So I really prayed that somebody would come back to take us to the hospital before it was too late. And I expected it would be David or the guest house manager, but no. At that time, just at that time, a colleague of ours, another wecker, Ross Campbell, was driving around the big roundabout near our house on his way home from, from work. And he was going to take one road which led to his house. And just as he was on the roundabout, the thought came into his head, no, I'll just go and visit them at the guest house instead. So he took a different road and came to see us literally two or three minutes after my prayer. He said, jump in the car. He took us to the same clinic and he didn't go to the front like I would have gone. He knew the way to the back. And he took us to the back entrance so that we could go in that way. And behind where we were parked, there was another car and the doctor was getting into his car to go home. And when Ross explained, he came back in, he um, anesthetized Daniel and stitched him up and things. But you know, if, if David had come home, we'd have gone to the front door, we'd have missed him. If we'd have been five minutes later, we'd have missed him. But God answered that prayer in the most mm. amazing way. That's Absolutely. incredible. Sounds like poor Daniel's been through the ringer. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it, it <laughs> we hope you enjoyed Till the Whole World Hears. If you found this helpful, please write a review. We'd love to hear from you. If you would like to know more about WEC UK and Ireland, you can visit our website or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Links are in the description. Join us next time to hear more about what living as a missionary is like. Thanks for sharing our podcast and blessings on your week. Goodbye.